The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. I'm Darren Fonda, Managing Editor for Barron's. Welcome to Barron's Live, Managing Your Money. Today, we're talking to Nick Colas, co-founder of Datatrack Research. Nick has more than 30 years of experience on Wall Street, including equity research, investment banking, and money management. He has an MBA from the University of Chicago and has been a widely followed market strategist for more than 14 years. Thanks for being here, Nick. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So let's start with uh, your view of the markets. The S&P uh, 500 has been in a pretty uh, big slump uh, since July. It hasn't done much. Uh, it's down a few percentage points from its high that month. Bond yields have also moved up fairly sharply lately on renewed fears that the Fed isn't go- quite done raising interest rates uh, and inflation perhaps maybe more entrenched than anticipated. I, I guess the, sort of the starting question would be, are we in a summer slump? for stocks or is uh, something deeper holding the market back? No, so far it's certainly a summer slump and nothing more worrisome. Look, we had a phenomenal start to the year. Uh, January was very strong and that carried through all the way through till July. And when you look at years with that kind of cadence and they're relatively infrequent, you do typically get this kind of summer slump, late summer slump into October, simply because we've had tremendous gains. And at the same time, we now have to digest those before we get that rally into year end. So we're still very constructive on stocks, but you know, really think that the near term is still going to be quite choppy through the end of the quarter in September. So uh, do you see stocks going kind of sideways um, until the end of November? Or is this just a seasonally weak period? It is. It's seasonally weak for a number of reasons. First, as most people probably know, August, September, October, usually kind of tough months for the market. October particularly has those big drawdowns, but even excluding those very choppy period, November and December get better. Look, there's nothing really super fundamental about what's going on in the market, even right now with this with pullback in, in August, that makes me very worried. You know, investors are still looking for individual stocks to buy. There's still very low correlations in the market. Stocks are zigging and zagging in different directions. That doesn't happen when things are bad. When when things are bad or when people are worried about macro issues, everything trades together. You know, everything trades as one. Right now, we don't have that, which is very, very healthy. So the overall internals of the market are still very good. We just have to eat through some volatility in the near term. I'd say another 5% pullback is my best base case. And then from there, we can begin to rally into the end of the year. And do you have a, a year-end target for the S and P five hundred? I think we can be up ten percent from here, so that's that's going to be a very very strong year, and that's totally fine. But you know we should you know moderate our expectations for the next month or two because it's it's going to be choppy for for the rate discussion that you began to to have as you preface this question. Well, let's pull back a little bit and talk about the macro. Um, I, I think there's some concern that um, the Fed isn't quite done raising rates uh, that we might see one more, um, which would take the Fed funds rate well above, I think, five and a half percent. Mortgage rates are now over seven percent or right around there. Um, That's pretty bad for housing, for anyone looking to buy a house or refinance. It's pretty awful. Um, And at the same time, I think the consumer is reasonably healthy um, and the job market is certainly um, pretty strong. 
Um, you know, unemployment rate is still extremely low. Uh, jobless claims are not rising uh, by a substantial amount. So you kind of have a situation where credit is tightening. Uh, rates might be going up a little more. The housing market is weak with high mortgage rates. And yet the labor market looks pretty healthy. Um, it doesn't seem like it's a bad situation or scenario for the market, but it's not great either. What's your perspective? Yeah, that's a very, very good summary. I think the market is beginning to understand that the Fed is going to be, you know, what they call higher for longer, higher rates for a longer period of time. So it isn't just the fact we're going to get one more rate increase this year, uh, one of the next three meetings. It's also the Fed is very going to be very reluctant to cut rates over the near term, meaning all through next year. The market has been really hoping for rate cuts in the first half of next year. But what you see in the Fed funds futures market is the market's understanding now the Fed is very serious about keeping rates high. And that also has a dampening effect for two reasons. The first is the market just works better when the Fed's cutting rates. And that's always a tailwind. So we're not going to get that tailwind now to the back half of next year. The second thing is the Fed's very serious about keeping real interest rates high. (coughs) Excuse me. And that's an overhang as well. Um, Nick, can you just talk about what real interest rates are? Sure. So when you look at your screen, and you see the treasury yield, 10-year treasury yields 4.3%. That 4.3% is a function of two things. The first is future inflation expectations. We're going to call those 2.3%. That's about where they are right now. And they've been kind of grinding their way lower because the market's begun to realize, okay, the Fed's serious about getting inflation under control. The Fed's target is 2%. Current inflation expectations are like 23 The other part of it is 2%. That 2% is what's called the real interest rate, meaning real after, you know, when you take inflation out. We haven't had 2% real rates since the mid-2007, 2008 area. And so real rates have been very low. And now they're coming back up as the Fed really pushes on the idea that real rates have to be higher for longer. So even though inflation expectations are going down, you're losing money in bonds because real rates are going up. And they'll probably continue to go up because the Fed is showing how serious it is about keeping getting inflation down and keeping it down. And that's the real story about higher for longer, not just high nominal rates, but high real rates. And that's what slows economic activity. Well, let's talk about that idea uh, a little bit more as it relates to bonds. Uh, you know, bonds, I, I think, have been pretty disappointing again this year. You know, They haven't suffered the heavy losses that they did in 2022. Uh, but they're not doing much um, in terms of nominal returns or in terms of real returns, as you're pointing out. Um, the headwind is obviously uh, the Fed and expectations for maybe further rate increases, but also the market is not getting the tailwind that was anticipated by um, you know, a weakening economy and ultimately Fed rate cuts. So this kind of raises the question of what do you do about bonds right now if you either hold them Do you continue to hold them and hope that things get better and just kind of clip your coupons? Or do you just avoid them altogether and stick your money um, in a money market fund where you can get around 5% and not take any interest rate risk at all? Look, our perspective is you want to own, you do always want to own bonds. They provide income and they provide a non-correlated asset. And by that, I mean, typically speaking over time, stocks and bonds trade differently. We've seen it this year. Bonds haven't worked and stocks have. So in different parts of the economic cycle, different assets work. And so you never want to be entirely out of bonds. Fixed income, you know, and money market funds are included in this should be part of a portfolio. Now, as to where on the yield curve you want to own your bonds, 
the short end money market funds out to two year treasuries look very, very attractive to us. That 5% yield is going to get you a good after tax or after inflation return. So that's a very good place to be. Money market funds, short-term treasuries. I'm still reluctant to say buy long-term, longer-term bonds because you still have this risk that real rates continue to rise as the Federal Reserve shows just how serious it is about cutting inflation and getting inflation under control. So my perspective is, yes, you still want to own bonds and fixed income, but you want to own them between basically money market fund types of, of maturities, literally overnight, out to two years. That's the juicy part of the curve to me, where you can make some good money, take very little risk, and get a good uh, after inflation return. Anything longer than that, I really am advising clients to wait. And Mm -hmm. let's see your yields go higher and stabilize before we get into the long end of the curve. Mm -hmm. So those, those treasuries or corporate bonds with very short maturities or durations up to two years, those bonds are basically already factoring in or pricing in. Uh, maybe another quarter point hike, but probably not much more than that. So you're not taking a lot of duration risk or interest rate risk with those bonds. Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> and look, if the Fed decides to go 25 basis points more than expected, you're not going to get hurt in two years or less uh, maturities. You could get hurt in five, 10, 15, even 30 year bonds because real rates continue to go up. So that's the nice risk averse portion of the yield curve to be in. So basically, this is a, a market where you don't want to be reaching for yield. Um, the the yield, the extra yield that you you're not even getting much extra yield if you go out on the yield curve. Um, and even if you do, it might not be worth it because of the rate risk that you're taking. Exactly, that's her view. Okay, um, let's talk a little bit about um, the international situation and international equities. Uh, I think a big concern right now is China. Um, its economy is looking weaker than anticipated. You've pointed out that the air pollution data over big cities like Beijing indicates that the economy is struggling there to recover to pre-pandemic levels. How how does that ripple through to the U.S. and European equity markets? And if you want to take a stab at it more broadly to global GDP. Sure. So just to to flesh out the, the, the comment that you made about air pollution, it's very hard to get good economic data from China. The published numbers are sometimes accurate, sometimes maybe a little bit less accurate. So we look at air quality data around all the major cities in, in China literally every week. And we compare them to prior years, particularly 2019, pre-pandemic. What we find is that the air quality across China is much better than it was pre-pandemic, which tells us that economic activity is much slower. Fewer people are driving, fewer trucks on the road, less factory production, less construction. That tells us the Chinese economy is still quite slow. And we had a very good early call on that using the air pollution data. It still shows a lot of weakness. And that tells us that the Chinese government's going to have to really push fiscal stimulus in order to get the economy going again. And they have a raft of other issues as well. So the takeaway from that is that don't forget that China is in a major part of the emerging market. Um, stock index. And so when you're buying EM stocks, you're often buying Chinese stocks. And that's a bit risky until we see some further fiscal stimulus from the Chinese government. So you wouldn't be um, buying the pretty big dip in China equities right now? No, I would not. No, it's it's been very hard to make money in Chinese equities. If you look at the like the MCHI ETF, which is the MSCI China ETF out of, out of iShares, 
that's had like a 3% compounded return annually for the last 10 years. It's not been a great long-term money maker. It's been a good trade from time to time. You have to trade time those trades very carefully. The S&P return by contrast is like 12%. So you're making good structural money in US stocks and that's just not happening in China for a whole host of reasons. But primarily, you got to think of these things as trades. And it means you have to time them carefully. And it just doesn't feel like the right time yet. There'll be a great buying opportunity in Chinese stocks when the government gets serious about fiscal stimulus, <clears throat> when the central bank gets serious about easing uh, interest rates. We're just not there yet. Mm -hmm. And I mean, a big concern right now domestically in China is the real estate market. There seems to be another big property developer, developer um, that's at risk of, uh, of going under. Uh, and um, this could ripple through the Chinese economy quite a bit. I, I wanted to just uh, go back to one thing that you talked about, the air pollution data um, and how it indicates that industrial activity and commercial uh, you know, driving and all that is not really back to pre-pandemic levels or it's being weak. Um, is, is there any sense that the air pollution might be better because China is not um, burning as much coal and natural gas and is shifting to... Uh, <coughs> cleaner burning uh, fuels or renewables, or is it is it pretty closely tied to industrial activity? It's very closely tied to industrial activity. Those kind of changes you talk about are definitely happening, <clears throat> but they're much more of a secular nature. So they happen over a period of years and even decades. Um, and we see this in other countries as well. We look at this air quality data all around the world. <clears throat> and over short periods of time, five years or less, not as big of an issue. It does. It is has been a tremendously positive, for example, in, in Europe and in the U.S. Air quality here is much better than it was 10 years ago. All right. Um, so let's go back um, to the U.S. market. And I would like to also remind the audience to please uh, submit your questions and uh, we'll take a few in about 10 minutes. Um, let, let's talk about kind of what's been fueling the U.S. market. And the giant elephant in the room is big tech. Um, uh, you know, the magnificent seven stocks, including Apple and Microsoft uh, and NVIDIA and Amazon have just had a tremendous year. Um, Apple, as you've noted, um, has been faltering lately and it has had uh, a dampening effect on both the tech sector and the S&P 500 overall. Um, but you're still positive on tech. Can you talk about that and why? Sure. Um, so the point you made is exactly right. We started the year with a very strong tech rally. That was really the market leadership, particularly in Q1, but also a lot in Q2. So if you look at the gains for the S&P, for example, 100% of the gains in Q1 were big tech, you know, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Nvidia, Tesla, and Meta. That was all the gains in the S&P, all of them. In Q2, that fell to 73%. So the S&P, other names were beginning to catch up. In July, it was just 32% of the rally was due to big tech. So we saw that rally broadening out. And they've actually, ex-Apple, been holding up pretty well in August. So if you take out Apple, Apple has hit the S&P by like 0.7 points of performance. Everything else is kind of a wash. So big tech ex-Apple has been working okay. That's a nice, healthy sign. Apple's its own thing we can talk about, but I do want to mention we are still bullish on big tech, but mostly because of the cost cutting those companies are doing. They've done a very nice job this year of reducing their cost structures to manage their business more efficiently. And that's going to drive the earnings growth for the next couple of quarters. We're not relying on just, you know, big macro growth or a new iPhone or something like that. It's much more of a cost cutting story because these companies added so much cost during that big boom during 20 and 21, that they really had to rationalize their workforces. And that's actually helping the bottom line quite a bit. Incremental margins are 
have been very strong, very impressive in Q2. We think that is going to continue for the back half of the year. So it's not really a revenue story. It's a cost management and return on capital story. Well, let, let me push back on that idea because I think all of what you said is obviously it's correct by the numbers, but the big, big new trend in tech is AI and in, incredible optimism and hope that this will generate a new spending cycle, that this will lead to you know, productivity improvements throughout the economy, uh, a whole range of new applications and technologies. Uh, and it feels a little bit like the stocks have gotten ahead of at least the fundamentals of AI because it really isn't there yet. And there's a lot of hope that it will be in a few years, but it's not, it's not out there right now. So there is a good cost cutting story going on in tech, but there's also tremendous um, exuberance about AI. Is that exuberance overdone in your view? Yeah, it's a very good point. <clears throat> you know, and I'd say if you want to pinpoint where the epicenter of the AI hype is, it's obviously in NVIDIA. NVIDIA is up like 200% year to date, 201%, I think, as of yesterday. And that is very heavy. Now, chip stocks always trade crazy, right? So we can't say it's totally stupid, but I think NVIDIA's numbers later this week are going to be very telling about what kind of demand they're seeing for the hardware side of the AI trade and how that'll filter through. Because obviously until you have the chipsets and everything else in place, it's hard to write code at scale and have it impacts productivity. The longer term AI story, and I think you alluded to this very accurately, is about productivity. And that's a very important issue because the one one thing in U.S. companies have really lacked for the last two years is productivity. Productivity has been horrendous. Some of the worst productivity prints we've seen in 50 years on a quarter-to-quarter -quarter basis. It's beginning to improve, but I think that's why AI got so much attention in the corporate world, because every CEO knows they have to improve revenue per employee, productivity. And AI needs to help with that, and it should help with that. But I take your point that there's a hype cycle. I'm I think it was misrepresented in terms of how much it affected the stocks. I think the stocks really responded to the better Q2 numbers driven by cost cutting. And we'll see if the, if the NVIDIA quarter is strong later in the week, then I think that AI hype cycle continues. But I don't think we're reliant on it to have these stocks work for the next 12 months. That's a good point. So um, the stocks can work even without AI, um, even without the, the tailwind of the AI. I don't know if it's a bubble or trend going on. It's certainly a thematic bubble. We'll see how much of it is a stock market bubble, as I said, when we see the NVIDIA numbers and their guidance, because they really are the very you know core of this story in the big tech world. All right. Well, um, and do you have any picks in the tech sector? You mentioned Apple. Uh, <coughs> it's everyone's favorite stock to talk about. Is that one that you, you view favorably, or are there any others that you could talk about? Yeah, look, I mean, Apple... The, the sell-off in Apple this month, I think, is really problematic because it is everybody's favorite stock. It is the most heavy, the heaviest weight stock on the S&P. It's like a 7% weight. Honestly, that kind of sell-off worries me because it says that the market's responding to that weakness in hardware sales that we saw in the Q2 results, the calendar Q2 results. I'd be more inclined to think about a Microsoft, for example, uh, or even a Google that has some economically sensitive features to it that I think make it a, a little more attractive a pick. Apple's a wonderful company, but it's one of these funny stocks where it can go nowhere for a year and then rip in two weeks, even as large as it is. And right now the tape is telling me, let's be a little more careful with Apple. So you like some of the more cyclically sensitive big tech stocks like uh, like Amazon or Google? 
Yeah, I mean, Amazon is always problematic because you can never tell what quarter they're going to decide to show a profit or not. They, they managed to do a nice one in Q2, so awesome. But I'd be more inclined to look at a Microsoft or, or Google, which are up like 34 and 47% year-to-date. Meta's already up 150%. I'm not sure how much more good news can get baked into that story, but the other names look a little more attractive. All right, I'm going to ask you one more question, and then we'll go to some listener questions. Um Let's talk about, uh, you mentioned um, earlier that the, the, the rally in the market has been broadening out from big tech in the first quarter, um, uh, in, in spreading in the second quarter, and, and increasingly also in July so far. I would think that's a good thing um, for market breadth and for just the overall structure of the market, that it's not quite so reliant on the tech sector. Are there any other sectors that you view as particularly cheap right now? and poised to rally or conversely that you wouldn't touch. Yeah, but the other uh, <clears throat> the other sector that's interesting is energy. It's a very small part of the S&P. It's like less than 5%. So it doesn't make or break portfolios very often. I've been very impressed that the group has rallied and oil prices have stabilized and even sort of trying to hover on $80 a share or $80 a barrel WTI <clears throat> in the face of China weakness because that's really an important marginal uh, buyer of oil globally. So energy is cheap. Earnings revisions have stopped going down. The numbers look pretty solid for next year. And the group, you know, really got out of favor very fast in the first half of this year as things rotated back into tech. But I think they should have a pretty good back half of the year. I'm not thinking the same kind of gains as we saw last year, but I think energy, you know, large cap energy could be good for 10% in the next six months. It's a, it's a good so, trade. Okay. But like if, you know, you have oil around 80 right now, and if we got an economic slowdown uh, in the U.S., China <clears throat> continues to be weak, wouldn't that pressure oil prices and ultimately ripple over to energy stocks? I think it can, but I, I, as I said, I've been impressed that oil has held in very well. And I, I look at the weekly EIA data for gasoline consumption in the U.S., gasoline demand, and it's stabilized at roughly 0% growth year over year, which after being up 5 to 7% most of the summer is a noticeable slowdown already. And energy prices have held in very well. So I think a lot of that is already baked into the WTI price and into large cap energy. All right. Let's go to some questions. Um, so uh, Daniel asks, is a 2% inflation rate realistic, which is the Fed's <coughs> long-term target for inflation? And uh, if so, what is the cost to the economy? That is a wonderful question. So let's talk about why 2% is even a number. And the reason every central bank, ECB, um, UK, US have 2% of the target is because in a recession, inflation tends to decline by 1.5%. Disinflation, meaning negative inflation, is what we have had in Japan for 20 years, and it destroys economies. It uh, defers, it encourages deferred consumption. And so you want to have a 2% target. It is a realistic target in that through the 2010s, we did get there right, and we're a little bit below it. And 2% seems to be a good, stable level the market understands. So I think it is realistic. There is a lot of conversation repeatedly about the Fed moving their target to 3%. And every time Chair Powell has asked this question, he says, absolutely not. 2% is our number. And he knows he can't back away from that until he gets to 2%. So come hell or high water, we're going to get to 2%. So far, the path from you know 6% inflation to 3% has been very benign for the U.S. economy. Labor demand has been strong, as you mentioned at the top of the call. Everything's been going fine. GDP in the current quarter is running fine, 3 4 
So we're not paying any price for that right now. Labor market's been strong. So I think right now the Fed is emboldened to keep pushing for 2% because the path so far has been pretty benign, pretty mild. Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, it's that last mile. It's that, um, you know, the last percentage point that it may be the toughest um, and may require uh, some significant economic pain. And, and um, I don't know if there's ever been a cycle where the Fed has... Uh, been determined to bring inflation down without triggering a recession, at least from the heights that we've seen it. Uh, is there any historical precedent for it? There isn't, but there's a problem with the historical analysis. And this goes back to 1970. Yes, every time the Fed has raised rates, there's been a, a recession, but there's also been a geopolitical shock. So 1973, 1979, 1990, even <clears throat> in the late 90s, going into 2001 with 9-11 and then the the second Gulf War in 03. And again, in 07, we had an oil shock driven by commodity speculators and then the financial crisis. So there's always a shock that goes along with these recessions. So it's very hard to parse out how much of it was the Fed's fault and how much of it was that geopolitical shock that created the recession as well. Well, it's a tricky um, balancing act that uh, the Chair Powell and the other Fed um, governors um, have to do. And uh, we'll see, you know, what he says at Jackson Hole um, later this week uh, and whether um, he changes his views. Um, all right, let's, um, let's go to a, a, another question from uh, someone listening. Uh, Stephen asks, uh, are you concerned about current equity valuations given negative earnings growth, downward revisions, and falling operating leverage? Yeah, another very, very good question. So the way the quarterly EPS trends look right now is earnings have been declining sequentially. And I'm talking about S&P quarterly earnings have been declining now for about five quarters. Q2, what we just saw reported, should be the trough. And it's roughly, I think, $53 a share. And we're expecting it to begin to rise slowly in Q3 and Q4, both because of some seasonal factors and because of the cost cutting that I mentioned earlier. So we are currently at the trough. Now, the trough was discounted in stocks last year. The reason stocks, the S&P was down 18% last year was because of the decline in earnings that we saw bottom in Q2. And the market's now responding to future expectations of better earnings as we go forward into Q3 and Q4 and into 24. So as long as earnings are rising, I don't worry a lot about valuations. I think of PE multiples as like a temperature gauge or a market sentiment gauge. And when markets are worried about declining earnings, PEs go down. And when they begin to rebound, they go up. So I'm not so worried about a 20 multiple. Look, I don't like seeing a 20 multiple on the S&P. I think it's expensive versus history. But I'm also cognizant that we've got these big tech names that are over a quarter of the S&P that kind of live in their old valuation world because they've won like everything in their space over the last 10 years. It's hard to bet against them. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question on, you know, what an appropriate or right PE should be given all the factors that we have today from, you know, the structural strength of the U.S. economy to uh, trends like, um, you know, AI, uh, but that are offset by higher interest rates, uh, low population and demographic growth, um, ri rising trade friction uh, and protectionism around the world and, and weakness in China. You know, one could look at, you know, something like the Schiller cyclically adjusted PE, which is pretty elevated and say stocks are way too expensive. They have to come down. 
but then on the other hand, you can argue that um, there are fundamental strengths in the U.S. economy um, that maybe were not there uh, a decade ago, uh, and that would justify, uh, you know, a structurally higher cyclically adjusted PE. Do you do you agree with that, and or do you think that uh, there? I, I think there still is some. There, there's always valuation concerns, um, especially when you get up to these levels, but. Do you think that it's still okay to invest at these levels? Look, I'll make two points. The first is an anecdote. <clears throat> I spent three years working for Steve Cohen at the old SAC Capital. And one of Steve's mantras was math is not an edge. If you can work it out on a calculator, it is not the core of an investment story. You have to go find the story behind the numbers. So I'm not, I don't worry about a, you know, a Schiller PE or a 12 month forward PE, as much as I worry about positive and negative catalysts around that number, because if there's positive, positive catalysts, PEs don't go down. The other point I would make is and there's a lot of historical good, good analysis behind this. Schiller PEs don't do a good job predicting returns out for zero to five years. They do a nice job from five to 10 years, but they don't tell you anything about near term market direction. So as much as we think about the long term, okay, high Schiller PE means low nominal future returns, it doesn't really help you figure out where you're going to make money today, tomorrow, or next year. All right. Well, I like the idea that math is not an edge. Uh, speaking as somebody who wasn't particularly strong at math in school, um, <laughs> that, is, uh, that is a positive to hear from someone like Steve Cohen. Um, all right. Well, like my, my final question then is... Uh, we, we talked that we covered a lot of ground. Um, you said that you like tech um, here, you see value in energy, uh, you would be waiting for a better entry point into Chinese equities. Um, where else, or rather, where would you be putting your money now um, if you want to be defensive? If you want to be defensive over the near term because you're worried about the economy or you're worried about a, a, a shock or a big sudden S-curve slowdown, <clears throat> then cash is the only real answer. It's the one non-correlated asset. So if you're really risk averse, if you're just, if you've heard what we had to say today and think none of this is for me, then a 5% money market fund is absolutely the place to be. It's a good real return. If you're thinking, okay, I just want to have more non-correlated assets, one thing we haven't discussed is gold. I've been doing a lot of work on gold recently for, for a video I want to do. And what's fascinating is demand for gold is now 100% at the margin driven by central banks, China, Russia, Turkey, a handful of others. And they're buying regularly every quarter. As long as the global economy stays together and jewelry demand stays relatively high, because that's like half of all gold demand, I think gold is actually a pretty interesting trade for the next 12 months as well. Well, that that is an interesting point because gold is like sort of the ultimate um, bear safe haven. Um, so, would you be buying gold because you expect a deterioration in uh, in the dollar, in the economy, in geopolitical things, or just because you like it as an asset class? It's a good asset class in for a portfolio because it's non correlated to other things. So when when Everything else zigs or zags, gold goes its own way. So that's a, a positive. It has a good fundamental long-term story. And I think it does have a long-term geopolitical hedge aspect to it in that we're seeing a lot of countries interested in de-dollarizing their economies, China, <clears throat> Russia. And um, central banks are thinking, okay, if I don't want to buy treasuries, but I still want to buy a dollar-denominated asset, gold fits the bill because ultimately gold's still priced in dollars. So they get dollar exposure without having to buy treasuries and they get an asset that can't be confiscated. Once the gold is in their vaults, no one can take it away. 
and that's better than Bitcoin. Um, all right. <laughs> Very that's, good. All time, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for being here, Nick. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We hope you join us again tomorrow. Market Watch's Rachel Koning Beals speaks with Dr. Mariana Bonamone, Bonanomi, head of external education outreach at quantum technology and AI company Sandbox AQ about on-the-job training in AI and quantum fields and new programs at New York University and elsewhere to train the, to train the next generation of AI experts. That was a mouthful. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, stay well and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.